out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the drummer Steve Beswick, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry. Yes, indeed, one-time member of the Heartthrobs and also has worked with a lot of other bands, including Slipstream and, um, um, yes, also the Wild Swans for a brief moment as well. But anyway, this is the interview, and um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Steve, it's over to you. Well, that would have been through my father, um, who was uh, he was a dancer, he was a ballroom dancer, but he did Latin American stuff. Yes. So he had, and um, I found them recently at uh, their house, um, lots and lots of vinyl albums of very obscure Latin American big band stuff by Mexicans, real Mexicans, and all sorts of very odd things. And it's amazing. It's incredible stuff. Yes. But he was also into the Beatles and... Uh, all sorts of sexy stuff. So I, my first music that I played to myself was was uh, yeah the Beatles and all sorts of other bizarre Latin American stuff. Yeah. So was he? I mean, was was he dancing with your mother at the time? Or yes. Did, yeah. Right. So they were a, a kind of power couple on the dance floor. I guess so. Yeah. Yes, and I guess it was that period where of a generation because my dad, when he was very young, you know, said that. The thing that you did when you were, I suppose, in, in that period, I suppose, of the early, it would be in the late 40s, early 50s, that everyone learned to dance. You know, it was a thing yeah. that, that everyone went to the lo- local. In my case, we lived in the countryside, so it was the village hall or small town. I mean, really small town. But, you know, people did learn to do the dancing. So, um, yeah, so it was Latin. It wasn't the ballroom, kind of the waltz then and the quick step that he was into. It was more... I think they did. I think they did do that, but their real thing was was the Latin stuff. So the real kind of uh, sparkly dresses and yeah, the whole business, the percussion and all that, which got me into rhythm and well, I guess sparked my interest in that. Well, it would have done. And was yeah. it? And were things like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and Sid Charisse and and uh, people like that? Were they kind of? Were you kind of aware of those when you were growing up? I was aware of them, I guess, just through black and white films on the TV. Um, and they used to do really cool things, like they'd do some dancing and then they'd start playing pots and pans and things or kicking them and that sort of thing. There's a great bit of film, I forget which dancer it is, it's probably Fred Astaire, and he's dancing in full tuxedo and everything, and then he starts kicking drums and throwing things at drums, and it's all in perfect time. It's amazing. Yes. So, yeah, I was aware of that sort of stuff. Well, there was an amazing bit with him and Sid Charisse doing something called the Boneyard, where um, it's it's one of those dances that you then realise that Michael Jackson had watched it and went, right, I'm going to do almost exactly the same yeah. thing several decades later. Maybe you'll borrow everything. Yes. Well, those guys did things that have never really been, you know, I don't know. I mean, they just took it to a level that no, a bit like yeah. Jimi Hendrix and the electric guitar, really, wasn't it? So, um, so yeah. So when did you suddenly get a drum, drum set? Because that's quite a big thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, sort of funny story, I suppose. I had a friend who was in a band at school, a uh, punk band. They played, I guess, Ramones cover versions. And um, I used to go, they used to rehearse in a mobile classroom when those things existed. Remember them? Yes. At, oh, uh, God, yeah, yes. At school. 
<laughs> yeah, I used to rehearse with them at the local school. And um, occasionally I would go along and watch them rehearse because it was fun. And one day I went along and their drummer hadn't turned up for some reason and wasn't going to, but the drum kit was there. And my friend turned around and looked at me and said, can you play the drums? And I said, I don't know. So I said, I'll have a go. And I could. Blimey. I know, knew all the songs. Um, and I could just do it. Excellent. Very so, strange. so what year was that? Oh, blimey. Uh, nine. Did you say 79? Like yes. So during that period, I mean, what were you kind of, what were you particularly drawn to in the charts at that time? That time, probably nothing in the charts. Um, I was into the, heavily into the Ramones uh, for a few years. Um, uh, Stray Cats, they were in the charts, I guess. I used to love them. Yes. Um, uh, a couple of other American bands, I forget now, but uh, yeah. Yes, because it was kind of interesting at that point, because you'd had we had the punk period and the post-punk world with people like the Gang of Four and um, yeah. Magazine and Peel, and then there was the indie world that was when I became kind of really obsessed with, I suppose, the John Peel show and used yeah. to religiously record it on my TDK, D90, and then The Enemy on a Wednesday and started, yeah. I suppose, going to money, you know, going to a lot of those kind of little gigs rather than something major, you know, just because it was all exciting and the bands were quite new. So what was the kind of 80s like for you? Yeah, very similar. I think that the whole indie scene inherited uh, the punk ideology that you can just go and do it anyone can be in a band yes and i think the indie scene is when anyone just actually did go and be in a band and i used to like the really jangly floppy fringed a thousand tambourines you know the really the really floppy stuff i really liked um i really loved the first um i can never remember the title of it the first uh, oh i can't remember what they're called no skip it yes <laughs> that's fine it's interesting because actually, because I, you know, because it was listening to the Smiths, I suppose when I first heard the Smiths, I thought, oh God, this is amazing. And then there was all those bands like the June Brides came along and then the, the you know, the Go-Betweens and then the Triffids. And, you know, it just, there was just a quality, which I kind of think that for five years, that indie pop sound, which is kind of 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths, certainly had something going on and there was something kind of exciting. So there was people like... The wolf hands and yeah yeah no and um yeah and then a bit like you know the other bands like we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it and big flame and big stick yeah and uh bog shed and stump they all kind of added to something kind of exciting i mean i know some of them weren't particularly jingly jangly and had that they must have got the birds kind of greatest hits in their record collection and tried to play along to it but it did there was something kind of magical about a lot of those songs. And I remember, you know, feeling very excited and not wanting to miss, miss the John Peel show because there was always something that... I always kind of felt that in one of his shows there'd be something quite brilliant. You know, everything was fine, but there'd be one track that would just blow your mind and that, that was kind of worth the perseverance, really, with John. So um, yeah, it was it was quite something. So when did you get into your first band, you know, kind of proper... Oh, uh, well, first ever band would have been this Ramones cover version band that kind of morphed into uh, adding various other, you should do uh, Can You Smell the New Smell by uh, 
Flux of Pink Indians. Oh, yes. And stuff like that. Um, and that became morphed into a band that was called, believe it or not, By Order of the Seven Pigs. Now, nice. I don't know. But yes. so that was my first ever band. Um, I toyed with toyed with the whole thing for a while. Um, didn't really take it particularly seriously um, on a very local sort of level. Um, I had the thing is getting into music is uh, getting into playing music is that it comes with a built-in social life and built-in friends. Yes. You, you don't have to try. You've always got somewhere to go, and when you get there, you know everybody. Um, you don't get that with anything else, I don't think. Really. Not, not quite in that way. Yeah. And where were you brought up, by the way? Where was this kind of... Lo- where were you located? Northampton, same place I am now. Right. Blimey. There's been... God, there's been quite a few people from Northampton I've just interviewed recently, actually. God, my mind's going to go Pat, blank. Catfish? Pat Fish, yes. <laughs> that was the one. And uh, I think there was... Yeah... And obviously, people the the uh, Bauhaus as well, wasn't it? And then, yeah. so yes, it was quite the scene, wasn't it? It was well. I don't, well yeah. There was definitely something going on there. So, so then, as the eighties progressed, were you just kind of looking at it as more of a hobby? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, for, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, we all dream about being pop stars and rock stars and and everything. But um, I don't think I ever really thought I was going to. I used to dream about it and everything. But uh, you know, you. From right from early days of playing tennis racket guitar along to Ramones records, you know, or playing pots and pans to the Beatles, which I did. Yes. Um, you never really think that you're going to do it in front of thousands of people, but eventually it did. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's interesting, because up to 87, there was definitely a scene, you know, the indie scene, and there'd been... Yeah. A lot of kind of bands, there'd been Red Wedge, everything was going kind of interestingly. And then Ecstasy hits and the music scene, I thought, changed quite a bit. And a lot of the the Smiths broke up and then a lot of the other bands were kind of getting very jaded because mostly, you know, two, two, three albums over five years is normally the lifespan of, of a band. And so when Ecstasy happened, I think the music press wanted the next thing and they thought, yes, it's dance, it's going to be, you know, the Happy Mondays, Soup Dragons stone roses primal scream and then you know obviously that was great for that that to fill that void and and then you know we had you know the grunge scene in seattle kind of which we got very excited about i remember john peel playing this you know was it sub pop 100 compilation which we all thought was fantastic so then as the 90s progressed um before the heartthrobs were you in a another band before them not that anyone would have ever heard of, um, again, just lo- local things. Yes. So how did the, the heartthrobs come together for you? For me, I, um, I got to a point in life where I was at a kind of, I guess, uh, what's the expression, uh, a crossroads in life. Yes. And I was thinking about what to do. And I knew I could play the drums. I knew I, was, I thought I was pretty good at it. And um, so I thought, well, right, I'll see if I can become a professional musician. You know, follow a dream and all that. Yeah. Uh, and like you, I used to buy Enemy and Melody Maker in particular. And in the back, of, you might remember in the back of Melody Maker in particular, there was a lot of adverts. Yes. Of all different sorts, and there, but there were also musicians wanted, required adverts as well. And I used to go through all those, and I auditioned for all sorts of people, some of whom became famous, some of whom disappeared without trace. Um, but this one day. 
a Wednesday, of course. I opened it, go straight to the back page, is what I always did. And there was this tiny little box, not one of the big adverts, pictures and all that, just a tiny little box with some text in. And it said, signed band requires drummer. And then underneath that, it just said, iron fist in velvet glove. And that was me hooked. Yeah, that's actually it. That was it. There wasn't anything else on that. And a phone number. I rang the phone number, um, spoke to them, got on, got on, I can't remember who I spoke to, got on well with them. I was invited down for an audition, um, which went really well. And um, they rang me back a couple of days later and offered me the job, I guess. Yes. And that was it. So had you were you aware of the band and their first album? Um, to some extent, I mean, they'd played in Northampton um, at least once, um, and I'd seen a bit of press and some adverts and stuff. They always had really good imagery, I thought. Um, so, yes, I knew of them, but yes. I wasn't a fan or didn't particularly know the music really. But... No. And, well... and the thing was, when I got a demo tape through, a cassette, that's yes. how long ago it was, um, I put it on, and it immediately, the drums came in first, and I thought, well, that's me. It actually sounded like me playing already. And I knew then that I had a good chance of getting a job because it sounded like me. Yes. Well, that's handy. That's very yeah. handy. And, did, and, you know, it's kind of interesting cause, because there is the sort of the bands who just form and that's them and then it all goes, you know, they finish. But then there's bands who, you know, change lineups and they keep sort of going for a certain amount of time. Or if you're a, like, a band like Chicago from America, you just... It doesn't yeah. matter who the personnel are, you just keep going. But did you... I mean, they become what... a living entity on their own. Band names, you know, become something different, don't they? I mean, I always think Depeche Mode. People just think, well, it's Depeche Mode. But you don't think about what the name is or to what the words are. You don't, it becomes something else, you know? Yes, well, absolutely. So a, a band can exist with anybody in it. Yes, I think I, I recently found there were three versions of the Rubettes, and I thought, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. And two versions of Barclay James Harvest. And uh, you think, well, I expect the legal team are having a great time. <laughs> Who knows? It's quite tricky, isn't it? The murky yeah. world. But um, yeah, so with, because I went to see, you know, I, I went along to the Norwich Arts Centre and saw them sort of in the early 90s. And at the time, I think they just got the first album out, Cleopatra Grip. So there was quite a lot of interest. And, and obviously, this is kind of pre-Britpop. But um, yeah. there was definitely something exciting. I mean, we'd had Lush, who'd had two female-fronted sort of singers, guitar players. So then yeah. so the heartthrobs came along, and there was a slightly similar vibe. Plus, they were the, the sisters, aren't they, of um, the late Echo and the Bunnymen drummer, which yep. was... Yeah, which was quite interesting. Yeah, so that was it. I was going to say, did it? You know, does it feel quite strange, kind of walking into the, somebody else's shoes in a band, when you think, okay, what? You know, is it? You know, I mean, because in a way, we look at it as a fan, as a glamorous thing, but it's like someone with a new, you know, a new person at at work and having to sort of figure out what the dynamics are and what what's expected and stuff like that. Yeah, it's. Uh... It can be quite daunting, I think, yeah. Um, and for them, it is literally like having a new, new guy start at work, you know. Um, sorry to make it sound a bit drab, but but it is, really. Um, that's that's their job, you know. Um, for me, it was quite... Um, 
I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I was daunted by it, but I was aware that they'd had a drummer, someone else had already done their thing, and he had a very kind of Peter Freitas style about him. Uh, luckily, I'd studied Pete quite um, quite thoroughly through the eighties, um, so it wasn't that much of a struggle. And I made sure, like I always do with people I play for, that I learnt the songs really well. So. I always knew what was coming up next and the feel that should be there. I may yeah. not play exactly played exactly the same thing, but they wouldn't have been surprised, you know. Yes. If we launched into the chorus, it sounded like the chorus. Absolutely. So by that, because you probably mentioned it, but just, but they'd done the, had they done the first two albums and were then sort of working on the third album, Vertical Smile, with you. Um, well, they'd done the first one, uh, Cleopatra Grip. Uh, that had been kind of indie hit, I suppose. Yes. Um, it got, I think it got to number one in the indie chart. Um, although I might have made that up. I think it did. Um, and they'd recorded Jubilee Twist, the second album. And um, then um, they had, I don't know whether you know the history of the band, but the original lineup was... Rose and Rachel were sisters, yeah. of course, brothers, uh, sisters of uh, Pete, and um, a couple of chaps. And then Rose and the drummer, sorry, uh, Rachel and the drummer were in a relationship. So there's two sisters, and actually there was two relationships in the band as well. Can oh, you imagine I did the not. The tension of that. Yes, I didn't um, know that, by the way. Yeah, so um, that was fairly explosive quite often, as you, as you might imagine, um, families and relationships. In a band, it's all, it all became a bit Fleetwood Mac. Let's put it like that. I, I was going to say it does yeah, sound it really like did. it really did, and um, it just couldn't survive and didn't. So they had some standing people for a while, but they wanted a couple of permanent people, so somebody on drums, somebody on bass, you know, to to, to slot in. And once side auditioned, um, I think they were they were, must have been pleased with what they heard, so they felt that I could fit in and um, and they could carry on. Yeah. I mean, do we, I mean, by then, I mean, like you said, there was two sisters and two relationships and four people. That's quite an amazing, that's quite mind-boggling, really, isn't it? There was, there was no, there's no sort of room for manoeuvre there, really, is there? So, um, God. It could get actually violent. I would imagine there was moments yeah. where, where things didn't slow down. So that must have felt like there was a certain honeymoon with the band when you came in. Did um because you replaced okay so you replaced Mark who was on the, yeah. the original drummer, did Stephen also get replaced, the bass player? Stephen was a keyboard player. Uh, Rachel was the bass player. Right. God, this is quite tricky, isn't it? Rachel and Mark were in a relationship. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I should have. I should draw one of those. You know. We need one of those maps. Don't you we? need. We need a map, actually. I'm sure there is one somewhere. No? I'm sure <laughs> the world of the heartthrobs. So did God just just briefly. So there was the four of them. Bit of a tense relationship. Did two? Yeah. Did the two men leave and two new men arrive, or did just one man leave? Just the one man. Great. Okay, I've got you. Just Mark left. <laughs> so Mark left. Good. You came in and everyone went few. The dynamics changed. Did it feel? Did you sort of? Did you feel like that moment in Spinal Tap where you just said, yeah, I'm lukewarm, lukewarm water. There's fire and ice. You probably didn't, did you? 
Did you manage? Did you kind of chill the vibe out a bit with the band? I think I think, I think we did. Me and um, me and the new bass player. I think we did. Whose name was Colleen uh, from Canada? Hello, Colleen. Is it where you are? Yes. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so I think we did a bit, um, but there was still a relationship in there, and um, there was still a fair amount of tension that went on. And Alan, the guitarist, was a personality. Let's say I loved him to bits, but uh, I think he could cause a bit of chaos when he wanted to. And so there was still, and it and it was the point of the band in a way. It was it was what they were about. You know, the songs are all about, you listen to them, relationships that have gone a bit wrong or, you know, that sort of thing. And so it, it was all a bit, you know, I've seen literally before going on stage, the band throwing chairs at each other and then they walk out on stage. Yes. You know, that's how it was. Wow. And as, and a, as a... You go out and you do an amazing gig, you know? Yeah. And as a fan, you know... You put bands like that as one of the more gentle sounds. Not gentle sounds, but, you know, like, you'd probably think they're fine. They're not going yeah. to kick off. So wh- what was your memories of the, the recording? So you toured for the second album, but what, yes, were your, yeah. what were your memories of the recording the third album? Oh, um, my main memory uh, is, I suppose there were two main memories, one of which is playing the songs so many times that a couple of them I was thoroughly sick of by the time we'd got them recorded. And I think possibly it may have actually um, enabled me to deliver a a better performance because um, we just do it over and over and over again. And I was actually getting a bit angry by the end of it and I'd take, do a take and it'd be absolutely, well, I I would think it would be absolutely brilliant, you know, and they'd go, well, again, and by that point, I was swearing. And so I think, you know, we must have done songs 20, 30 times. And by the time you've done that, you're, you're sick of it. Um, and But, again, it gives that edge to the performance. Yes. You know, by the time I'm smacking the whatever out of the drums in in all of those songs, you know, I'm, I mean it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not just tapping away at the back. Yeah. And did you, I mean, what studio did you record your third album in? We did, uh, we did a demo to the whole album. And we did that in the, I can't remember what it's called, but it was Jesus and Mary Chain studio in London. Right. Um, I don't even know if it's commercially open. I think that was sort of a favour, but um, yeah, we did that. And that came out amazing. Actually, that in some ways is better than better than the actual released one. And then the released one, we went off into the countryside in, oh, Lincolnshire. Right. To I think it was called the Chapel, something like that. Anyway, it was an old chapel, literally, um, and it was an amazing uh, residential studio. It was really, really good, really good. Um, and I remember particularly the first song on the album, uh, Perry said. I recorded that in a ballroom in this uh, sort of ballroom in this place, huge room with the floor covered in candles. It looked a bit like, uh, I don't want to spoil the uh, the image, but it looked a bit like a meatloaf video. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, uh, but again, it was just about atmosphere. and was there, a, was there a bit of pressure on the band at this stage? Because obviously there's a sort of slight honeymoon phase, isn't there, with the first album and... 
you know, the kind of excitement, then the sort of sort of second album, which can sometimes be a bit, I suppose you could say a bit hit and miss, some, you know. But then, you know, often people are, you know, the record label are sort of thinking, look, you've got to deliver something else here and make yeah. sure you don't lose any money. And, and sometimes the band are getting a bit strained. So did was there a little bit of added pressure for them to think this, this is kind of make and break? I just wondered if there was that vibe that this was this was kind of going to be the last album. No, there wasn't that feeling. There was a bit of pressure, I think. And I think going back to a, to a comment you said earlier about what happens to about the indie scene and what happens to indie bands, I think I think the indie scene was a bit of a it fell victim to its own success, and so did indie labels, because they suddenly started having hits, actual hits. Yes. Um, and then American labels come along and they say, "Here's a million billion dollars. We want to release your." records in america and of course everyone jumps at that and then all of a sudden you work for them yes you know and you know is it is how is this an indie label if it's funded by america you know that's not independent yeah and you've then got to you know we had i remember being in a in a rehearsal room and people flew over from california from la to sit in our rehearsal to listen to the songs off jubilee twist to see if it was good enough to go on tour with Right, no pressure there. Uh, amazing, I mean, amazing. I mean, you wouldn't think it, but they seemed very happy. Um, and then dropped us. After <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, um, but that's just the way it goes. My God, that is tricky. And so you'd done the tour for Jubilee Twist, and then yeah. you did record the uh, Vertical Smile. Did you manage to tour that particular album? Yeah, we did. Um, yeah, I mean, we. Well, I, I could talk all night about this particular tour but i won't because i'll get sued for one thing but um we went on tour with the four for about two and a half weeks oh yes and i've never seen anything like it in my life in what way all sorts of ways i could perhaps illustrate it with the very first time i met mark d smith yes got i can't remember which venue it was um somewhere in london and um i walked into the venue and i walked backstage to find the dressing rooms and I found this carpenter who was um, fitting a lock to a dressing room door. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, Mark's demanded his own dressing room and it must have a lock on it with a key and everything um, or they won't play. And so they had to get carpenter in to create a separate dressing room and build a door. Blimey. Yeah. It makes it makes um it makes just want, someone wanting a couple of puppies backstage and some yeah. flo- floaty candles sound quite relaxing, really. Yeah, my, I think my funniest story from that tour, just to, just to lighten the mood a little there, was uh, we used to, of course, uh, they would set up and sound check and then they'd go backstage and then we'd set up in, all our stuff in front of theirs and we'd do a sound check. And apparently, I was told after we'd finished sound checking that um, Mark had, had called his manager over, I think it was, and he said to him, what's that horrible noise? And his manager didn't know what he meant, and, and eventually he worked out that it was us. <laughs> God. And he had to say, Mark, that's your support band. And I think he said, tell him to shut up. <laughs> and it kind of went on like that. And right. So you were, were you booked to be there doing the support for quite a few months and it just got curtailed? No, no, it was, I think it was just a two and a half week tour. We did the whole thing apart from one date. Um, 
yeah, I can't tell you about that. But uh, yeah. Yeah, my God, that's so tricky. Because in the 80s, I was a bit obsessed with the formal. So it's one of those things, you bought the album, saw the tour, bought the album, and then you think, God, I can't believe... I didn't realise they were one of those bands who would just actually tour and, you know, release an album tour all the time. And so I eventually... Never to, stopped. Ever. Yeah. So I um, eventually I thought, look, I'm not, I'm not going to... So I don't know if I really followed them so much in the 90s, actually, during that period, actually. So then... so. So when, after that particular support slot, how come you weren't doing the tour headlining at that stage? We did. Um, by that point, we were doing, I guess, it's very expensive to tour. You know, um, you have to hire the venues, you have to hire transport and crew, and it's, it costs a lot of money, and we have to pay them, all these people, and all these things out of our money. Um, a lot of people don't realise that, I don't think. Um, and so we started doing more one-off gigs, more special type gigs, or we thought they were special anyway. Yes. T-shirt amnesties and all sorts of strange things, um, rather than just go on tour because you just lost money. Plus, um, the record companies had stopped doing things like, because they were running out of money, they'd stopped doing things like tour support where they chip in to pay for stuff because obviously the record company makes no money out of you going on tour whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so to them, then they're not interested in it. Um, when there was lots of money around, they'd throw money at you. Um, yes. First Heartthrobs album cost something like three or four times more than the last one did to make. Blimey. That's kind of a weird way round, isn't it, actually? I think it's a very odd way round, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. In the... In the early early-ish days of the Heartthrobs, they were lauded as the new Fleetwood Mac by certain people in NME. Yes, um, uh, which was a little bit ludicrous, but I sort of knew what they meant—the the relationship and kind of <laughs> inbuilt violence. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> so uh, makes sense. I know there was a lot of harmonies, and it was all very well played and all that sort of stuff. So I understood what they meant, but yeah. Um, and so the record company. Re- really was almost desperate to sign them in the first place and did and threw money at them for a while because in the certainly in the 80s and i guess into the early 90s there was a lot of money in, in the music industry and um they made a lot of money yeah so that just doesn't happen now no definitely not now and then sort of so you, so it was 93 the band split up did you did everyone sort of feel it was time to to quote Jim Morrison, to say this is the end. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I um, I actually found out we were splitting up at our last gig. But uh, yeah, we yeah. That. Um, but basically, I think what had happened was pretty much Nirvana had happened. Yes. And all of a sudden, nobody wanted to know female-fronted guitar bands. Nobody. Nobody wanted to know. Um, ironically, once Nirvana waned a little, or you know, a crop of female-fronted guitar bands came out and had hit singles in the main charts. Yes. Well, I was just thinking the timing was a bit unfortunate because if you'd hung together, yeah, I, I agree with you. Because because '93, I mean, because I saw. Nirvana in 89 they were touring Bleach and they were supporting Tad 
And then obviously they had Nevermind, which was probably 91. So there was like, wow. By the time they came to their next album, there wasn't that wow. It was like, oh, that's a bit of a tricky album. Not sure about that. And it was definitely not quite the thing anymore, you know, because everyone was moving on. And then sort of 94, it's like, Britpop, we love Sleeper, we yeah. love Echo Belly. Yeah. And, 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 and the Heart Clubs unfortunately missed out on that whole scene, which is a real shame, I think. Yeah, because I know a few bands. I mean, Lush had started as this very sort of, I'd saw them supporting, well, no, they were on a tour with the Pale Saints. 4AD and I, I remember you know they were just very much of that London I say London scene but you know there was a bit of a noise scene wasn't there the North London my bloody Valentine Silverfish the um the Faith Healers you know there was a bit of a vibe and lots of bands which had lots of feedback and you know you thought well this is great but they're not really going to do much no I know my bloody Valentine had the classic album Loveless Lush kind of managed to kind of change their sound a bit and smartened themselves up and went like, hey, we are Britpop now. <laughs> it was like, oh, well done. Um, you've made some money. So, yeah, it was a bit un- unlucky. So did you all, I mean, you found out at the gig, so it wasn't like, was it just like, this is the end? Yeah. I literally said, this is the last gig we're spitting up. Bloody hell, you must have had okay. your... It was like David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars, wasn't it? It was that kind of... Yeah. It was all over. A shocker. So then what happened? So then what happens when you sort of you're in the change not literally in the change rooms, but afterwards, you know, the next day, what what happens then with the band? Or not you the band, but your your own sort of musical journey? I so I, I kind of went back to I've never stopped playing drums, but um I went back to a couple of the local people I was, I'd been playing with um, and did some more of that. Did some more recording and played lots of gigs. Just kept doing it, really. Yes. So did you form a band at all with Rose? I was in a band with Rose, yeah. After the Heartthrobs, uh, she formed a band originally called... Oh, let me get this right. Was it Ag- uh, Agora? Agora, that was it, yeah. For a little while, and then it became Tom Patrol. And I got a call from Rose one day who said, I've got a new band. Will you play drums for us? And, um, yeah. And we did a bit of recording and did a few gigs uh, around the London area and just kind of fizzled out, really. Yes. So then, do you... God, I hope I got this right with my massive research. Then do you become part of Slipstream? Uh, a couple of years afterwards, probably, yeah. So Mark Refoy from... Uh, Spiritualised. Spiritualised and Spaceman 3 before that. Uh, so there he left uh, Spiritualised along with Johnny Mattock, uh, both Northampton chaps. Uh, I knew them before, they knew me. And so um, got a call from Mark. Do you want to be in my band? I said yes, and that was that. So we did, what, three albums bunch of singles, toured America, played lots of gigs in this country, and had a lot of fun. Yes, because actually Slipstream were quite a massive band, weren't they? Um, there was definitely a cult following. Yes. Definitely. And what was the experience like after going from one band into another band, but this time with just blokes? 
question. I don't think it made a massive difference uh, to me. I, as a person, get on with anyone, whether they're male or female, it doesn't make any difference to me, especially in music. Um, it's always been the music that mattered to me. I liked uh, Slipstream because it was different. Um, they didn't expect or want normal drum patterns, and by that point I'd started... Um, I say normal drum patterns, but that's why I started sort of experimenting a little bit. And our first album was produced by these dub reggae guys whose name completely escapes me. Oh, Zion Train. Zion Train, that was it, yeah. Who were literally out of their minds the entire time. Yes. And for one particular gig, asked me to not play the drums at all, but to hit the stands and the floor and anything but the drums. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of room for experimentation, which... Uh, I've always liked. Yeah. Okay. That sounds a bit like um oh, God, I'm gonna forget his name. Here's the here's the guy who's um God. Who's still alive. Um God. The kind of slightly bonkers reggae guy who's kind of um Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yes, they were there like that, yeah. Yes, that's the one. So, but then so that was the first album, Slipstream, in ninety five. Then you did two others, Side Effects and Be Groovy or Leave. Yeah. So by was it the case then that by the end of sort of ninety ninety seven you were just again the band had just kind of had the, had its day? I think the end of Slipstream was really the Tour of America. Um there are some relationship, uh, inter-band relationships. They call it musical differences, don't they? But Yes. But, um, there were some relationships that were a bit strange, particularly on that tour, for various reasons, which we don't need to go into. Um, and, yeah, it just kind of fell apart. But it still exists as a going entity. Mark, actually, I don't know if you know, played guitar with the Pet Shop Boys for a while. I, um, I I did sort of read that actually. Yeah, he did. Um, went on tour with the Pet Shop Boys for for quite a while, playing all of Johnny Marr's parts. Nice. Uh, which was amazing for him as a big Johnny Marr fan. Um, but yeah, so he really enjoyed that. And then he and Johnny decided to start basically start the band up again, and they do it with pretty much just them. And I think there's another chap plays bass. Yeah. Um, it's mostly computer based now with some live drums and Marr's guitar on the top, but it's. Yes. Uh, it's still good stuff. Yes, because I, I just remembered it was Lee Scratch Perry. Sorry. That's the man. That's the man. So, look, because I did, I must admit, you know, it was mostly the heartthrobs, but I did sort of look at discography. Did you play on a full record? A full record? No, I didn't. Fine. That's fine. <laughs> Sorry. It has been written down that I did, but no, I haven't. Right. Okay, then. But then... The June Brides, though. The June Brides, OK, sorry. I know this is a great thing with my research, isn't it? You think, God, no, there must be a different person, but with a similar name. Um, I thought, oh, that's interesting. So, yes, yeah, so then you did some work with the June Brides, and this is with Phil Wilson, who, yeah. everyone. Because, yes, because everyone I've spoke to about forming bands, and we're talking about the 80s, I mean, they mention several bands they will always mention orange juice and then they say this it was the smiths june brides go-betweens you know that early 80s thing so working with uh the famous or the great phil wilson must have felt quite an exciting experience it was yeah i was i wasn't i have to confess i, I wasn't i didn't really know uh, june brides back in the day as they say but i did know phil wilson's solo records that he did on um or oh, what label was it 
Big famous label. Oh, creation. creation, right? Yeah. It's got a deal with Creation to release a couple of solo singles, and they're absolutely marvelous. Um, so I knew them, and I was a big fan of them. So that was quite exciting. Um, yeah. Yes. So, because I know, because he's done various things. He did something which he called himself the Granite Shore. And then there yes, was all... that's the chap from uh, Exeter. Really? He's the, guy, the main guy for that, yeah. Okay, Nick, then. Nick, somebody with So what was the June Brides record that you did? Was that the one that came out about six years ago? No, I did a... I did two singles. Uh, yeah, two singles. They came out probably... Ooh, Four years ago, maybe. Right. Can't be, can't be six. Three or four. Okay, then. Because I know there's one which he did recently called She Seems Quite Free. And he, yeah, that's me. That was you, actually. So did you... I mean, has music... Have you managed to sort of make a career... Not a career. Well, perhaps you have. But have you made it... Has that been your main life? Um, not, in, not financially, no. Um, in terms of who I am, I guess, yeah, you know, I'm I'm a drummer to me. Yes. Um, I don't always get paid for it, but I'm always doing it. It's lovely when you do, but uh, you can't always have that. Um, but I'm, I'm always keeping going. Um, and I've been really lucky. Uh, I mean, my we've talked about all these bands and they're all in a funny order. You know, um, Green Brides were, were famous way before the Heartthrobs even existed. Um, and yet I was in them. One of, my, one of my most recent bands. So my, my timescales are all mixed up, but I've been really lucky in that I suppose I've got to a point where I've had people ring me yes, and ask me if I'll be in their band because they've heard what I've done on other records or other gigs and that sort of thing. And, I'm, you know, I'd quite like some of that. Yeah. Which is a really, really nice place to be. You know, I don't have to ask people. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah, because it's quite, it's quite something, you know, because I, I have done a few interviews with Bizarrely Woody Woodmancy from the, the Spiders. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, from his, you know, that story where, you know, you're getting together in a band, everything's going incredibly well, you sort of realise the singer's quite special, you do a few albums, you do America, and then suddenly it finishes. And I often think, God, how do you sort of pick yourself up? And he just has to kind of keep doing whatever to, to make a living. And, and he's music, a plumber, I think, isn't he? He might be. I think he's... he's I think he's a plumber. Right, he might be. I know that he got together a few years ago with Tony Visconti and did something called Holy Holy and started doing the, work, the, the, the sort of music of David Bowie. So it kind of helped him process that. And I just kind of wonder how it is. One minute you're in a studio creating the record, then you're on tour with people and you have that lifestyle and then you sort of have to go home one day and think... God, what happens next? And I just wondered how that, how that, how do you manage to sort of cope with all those kind of things? It's not easy, I don't think. You, I'm quite good at coping with things, um, but no, it's not easy. It's. Um, I remember when I was in the Heartthrobs, we'd go off and I we did my favourite ever gig with them was in Athens, Greece, yes. and and you you do things like that as part of your job and you'd come home and then you'd, you'd be in the town centre and you'd walk down the street and someone you knew would come up to you and go, hi Steve, I've seen you for a little while. 
what have you been up to? And you'd say, oh, I've just played in, in, in Athens. And their face would drop and it'd be like, oh, that you think I'm showing off. Um, well, you did ask me what I've been doing. That's what I've just done. That was the most difficult thing for me, I think. People didn't always react that well to your success, I think. Okay. You know, I, I consider myself to be a successful musician, although I have no gold records and, and certainly don't have millions of pounds. Um, but I did all the things I wanted to do. I've made records. I played at Reading Festival. I've played in other countries. I've, you know, I've done tiny little gigs. I've done huge gigs. I did all the things I wanted to do. Yes. I consider that successful. Well, absolutely. And And someone like me just... We were just fans. <laughs> we just have to, we just kind of, we're from the side, you know. When people say the musical differences back in the day, you really believed it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. What was most fans is money. As soon as money comes along, that's when the squabbling starts because I don't know if you know much about music law, and I'm not an expert myself, but basically all of the money goes to. Well, 50% of the money automatically goes to whoever wrote, wrote the lyrics. And the other 50% goes to whoever wrote the song. And the song, from a legal point of view, is the basic chord structure. doesn't include the drum part or the bass line or the keyboards or anything. So you can write the most amazing keyboard part to a song, but you legally you're entitled to zero money because you haven't written the song. Yes. It's crazy. Um, and so people get into arguments. But then when you look at a band like R.E.M., the reason why they stayed together in the same lineup all for all those years is because R.E.M. was actually a limited company called R.E.M. Athens Limited. And each member of the band was a director of that company. And all of the money went to the company and they were this, then paid as directors of that company. That was it. So no one got any more money than anybody else. So there was no need to fight. So they didn't split up. Yes. Clever management. Very clever. Yes. Actually, I did an interview with, I don't know if there was one or two managers, but I did an interview with, with one of them anyway, who was a law student who knew one of the members and then sort of just kind of joined the band and then stayed with them all through their life and still yeah. works for them, I guess. And, and yeah, I think they, they sat down and sorted that out before they started, which is probably yeah. what most pianos, well, 90% of the, or well, 99% probably don't do that, do they? They just go along. Record deal, you know, and someone offers you a record deal and you jump at it and they, they tell you they'll give you 10 grand in 1973, which was an enormous amount of money. And you could live for a number of years on just that alone. Um, and so people just signed any contract that came along pretty much and didn't really have proper discussions about how that money was going to be distributed. I mean, the Smiths, all the money went to Morrissey and Marr, all of it, yeah. all of it. The other two had to take them to court to get any money at all. Um, the Beatles, all of the money went to Ron Paul. Yes. It's a tricky, it's so tricky, isn't it? Because, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I, the only thing I know about it is what, people have told me you know mostly in these interviews and I realize all that world with the publishing and and people really I guess a lot of it is whether that people understand what they what it is they're signing and if they don't they then get surprised and it's a bit like but didn't you know what you were signing I suppose it's that moment 
where it's like you just need to say oh yes okay that's that's good or not but you know it's that kind of waking up one day and asking questions and it's a bit like actually it's a bit late now <laughs> I'm afraid it's kind of yeah, that's why managers exist music, music industry managers exist because bands can't do that sort of thing they're not supposed to for one thing and they can't they don't understand legal speak and all of it and I was surprised when I started um I guess with the heart throbs when money came along and we suddenly all of a sudden I was in a band that employed people um, yes which is quite a, quite an odd feeling we had people that worked for us and but there's also like contracts I don't know what they're like now probably radically different but contracts back then basically said you'll get an advance of let's say a hundred thousand pounds and they say you don't owe us that that's recoupable I say which means you don't owe us that money but the minute any money starts coming in, it goes to us, not you. Yes. Does that make sense? So you don't have to pay it back, but you don't get any money until they've recouped that money. It's, um, yes, I, I, I believe. I, I and if they make a video for you, like we made a video for a single called Outside, which was on Ruby Twist, and uh, took two days. Uh, it was something like £100,000 to make. And we had to pay for it. I mean, the record company paid for it, but it's recoupable. So it's just added to your debt. Yes. Well, I think it was um, it was probably Jim from the cart of the Unstoppable Sex Machine oh, said yeah. that, that, you know, I don't know, he owe, they owe the record label a phenomenal amount of money, so they'll never own their record, their music will never be theirs, it will always be, because they're just saying every year, well, you still owe us this colossal figure, and um, no, you're never ever going to play that off, so don't worry about it. Yeah. It's weird. So they, can't, they can't take you to court and make you pay it, but it just means that probably forevermore, any money that comes in from them, in terms of sales, that sort of thing, goes to the record company, they won't see any penny of it. Yes, this is true. They've probably never made any money out of the records sales. No. It, the advances. But I did just on that point, I did interview somebody from this band called the Flesh Tones and he said oh, yeah. he said the best his advice after decades of the music business and still being in it, just say, get the advance, grab hold of it and don't worry, you know, just make the record and give it to them. But just make sure you get what you can from that advance and don't worry about ever seen any more that just just accept you do, i think you, you do have to take that sort of attitude i guess yeah because you like the, then the bigger the advance is the more money you've got to live on Hooray! but the more the bigger the advance is the more they'll take off you in the long term yeah but i think he looked at it, it was like well i've got the money now I'll just do the record they can yeah. have, they can have the music i'll never own it but at least i've i've got something to pay the rent and and work and yeah. live live on and then i'll just do hopefully get another advance for the next record but it was yeah, yeah. That's, that's how it used to work you'd get an advance for every record which yeah. hopefully would, you know elton john would have got more money every time he made a record it's yes. gone up and up and up until they were giving him probably a couple of million pounds and you don't have to worry then about whether they, they're going to take all your record sales money it doesn't matter it's irrelevant yes absolutely but then... it doesn't work like that and I was just going to say, because you've done, you know, you've, you've dedicated your whole life to music, really. I mean, what's, what, would you, what would you have said to a, an 18-year-old self, say, starting out with all the, you know, the experiences and, and uh, kind of 
the ups and downs and sideways and, you know, the wisdom yeah. that you would have gathered, even if you've thought, well, I'm not sure if it's wisdom, but you've had experience and experience counts for a lot, doesn't it? Let's face it. Yes, it does. Um, uh, I mean, I'd have to think about it to come up with a proper response, but I guess it would be enjoy it. Um, don't think it's going to last forever because it isn't. And um, if they offer you some money, take it. Yeah, and uh, that's pretty much it, really. Uh, be careful. Don't sign anything without... I mean, back back when I was doing it, we had to be musicians' union members. I don't know if that's still the case, but certainly to, to do any BBC stuff, you had to be a union member or you couldn't do it. Um, so, yeah, be careful. Don't, don't sign anything without getting it checked out first. Yes. And did you... I mean, again... I'm not 100%, but I did sort of read somewhere that you had a stroke. Is that something that... I did, yeah. So that must have been one huge shocker. Yeah, definitely. So that was uh, Christmas, believe it or not, 2010. Jesus, 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, 10 years ago this Christmas. Yeah, and... so... Yeah, it changed my life completely, as these things do. Uh, and... I couldn't play the drums at all. In fact, I couldn't walk or anything. Um, I spent three days in hospital. Uh, I nearly died on my first night. And um, over those three days, I basically started moving again and sort of just came back to life, really. Yeah. Um, first time I sat behind a drum kit was a nightmare because I couldn't understand what I was looking at. Let alone play it. Um, and I've had to, I've had to relearn a lot of things, um, walking <laughs> as well, but uh, how to play the drums, I had to relearn how to do that. Yes. And did you manage, because, you know, I had various friends over the decades, you know, have had, you know, similar experiences. And I mean, yeah. some recovered, you know, that, oh, that's amazing. And Others were, you know, it wasn't so lucky, if one can be. So, did you manage to make a, a, quite a full recovery from that? Yes. Yeah. God, that's yeah, cool. I'm pretty much fully recovered. Um, have uh, what do they call it? Hyper hypertension in certain muscles, in arm and leg, particularly, which uh, obviously can interfere with playing the drums quite a lot. I actually had to got to a point where I was having problems holding a drumstick. Uh, in my left hand so I had to actually switch the way I hold the stick from don't want to get technical but from what's called matched grip to something called um, uh, yeah that's uh, another way of holding the drumsticks basically yes easy crazy that must have been absolutely a shocker and I mean well, I couldn't stop doing it I literally you know couldn't stop yeah. I will never stop playing drums. Um, so I had to teach myself a new way to do it. it. Must have been. I mean, I mean, was it something that? This might be the worst, stupidest question. Was it something that just happened and there was no warning? Yeah. And yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Literally, just happened one morning. Bang. Fuck. I know exactly what happened but I have no idea why it happened. No. 
Bloody hell, that must have been the scariest experience of your life. Yeah, literally a nightmare. Absolutely. Yeah. And did you, I mean, did you feel, I mean, with the recovery, how was your, conf, you know, the confidence thinking, fuck, is that going to happen again every time you walked out the door? Oh, well, I did feel like that for a while. The first time I left the house and went to the shop, it felt like I was going to the moon. Yeah. Literally. Um, and when I actually came back from hospital, I actually, I was frightened about walking up the stairs because I thought if I walk up the stairs too fast, the altitude might kill me. Yeah. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, does it? Well, yes and no, I suppose. Well, you can't relate to somebody else's um, illness because I've realised that. Because <clears throat> I was, you know, I was asthmatic when I was very young. Well, I still am, but I realised that nobody, I was the only asthmatic at school. I mean, this was in the sort of, that was, you know, through my, you know, realised my age. So, so, yeah, no one could understand how you couldn't breathe. It's like, well, breathing's simple. It's like, well, I can't, I'm really dying here. Mm-hmm. And then four <clears throat> four years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. So I had the operation, which was horrendous, and the pain was absolutely unbelievable. But I remember the first time I went to the shop and feeling absolutely terrified because I thought, I feel so vulnerable. If someone yeah. knocks into me or someone even wants to, say, attack me, I have absolutely nothing. To, <laughs> I All I'm doing is holding my heart, arm down by my side where the scar and the operation was. But I feel absolutely terrified and I just want to get back indoors as quickly as possible and lay down and lock the door. I felt really scared, you know, to be honest. It was... Yeah, I did have some of that, I must admit. <clears throat> it was like, God, everybody, you know, anyone could have, you know... I mean, you just thought, God, I now know what being a a vulnerable, say, old person must feel like, where you just yeah. think, you couldn't fight, you couldn't run. You know, it was it was ter- terrifying. So, yeah, it was, yeah, so I can't relate to the bit about the altitude, but going to the shop, as a little, I thought, oh, yeah, God, that reminds me of that, that moment, really. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, obviously during that period, that was when you kind of did your Phil Wilson, Tune Bride stuff. Yeah, once I'd got back behind the kit yeah and that must have felt really nice to sort of have yeah it was amazing yeah it was a real I was I challenged myself to be able to just play again that was all I wanted to do really so to get a sort of another shot at not exactly you know there wasn't a huge amount of money involved um but I've never played drums if you get into music to make money you know you're you're a fool (laughs) (laughs) let's face it um yes that's probably the the advice I'd give to anyone Yes. If you're doing it to make money, forget it. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. So to get another shot at doing it at that sort of level, I guess is what I'm trying to say—a level where people come along to your gigs and they sing along to every song and bounce around like lunatics. Then um, I was incredibly lucky, and I felt very privileged to do so. Yeah. Yeah, and just lastly, I mean, is there anything that that's in the pipeline now for the future? Um. I'm working with a guy called Chris White at the moment, um, who has his own uh, studio uh, in the back garden of his house that he built himself pretty much, uh, which is a really nice little place. And he he writes albums all the time. He writes at least an album a year. He enters the Eurovision Song Contest every single year with two or three songs, and every single year they reject him. Uh, it's a bit like the, the recent Iceland film. Oh, no. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very brilliant film. I suggest you watch it. Um, 
But yeah, so he's a prolific songwriter, and so uh, I've been doing a lot of recording around there, playing for him, um, and it's really easy uh, to do because he's, he's that sort of classic songwriter where you know you know what's coming next, not not because it's boring, but because it's it makes music sense, musical sense. Yes. You know, and it follows the right sort of path as these things should, and it's very good. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I've also been playing for a while um, with a guy called Henry Priestman. I you know that. Know Henry, Henry was in the Christians. Oh yes, I've just done an interview with Henry. Oh really? An absolutely lovely man. Yes, absolutely. Um, God, you can tell my brain's not very good with these things, can you? Think, oh yes, if I can't. He was in the yachts, wasn't he? And yachts then, and it's immaterial. It's immaterial. Yes. Yeah. Yes, God, it all comes back to me. Yeah. Oh well, God, he's he's amazing. Yeah, he is literally, and one of the nicest men you could ever meet. I was going to say, a proper actual pop star, but also really nice. One of the most lovely people you could ever meet. Absolutely, yeah, I know. So you, you've you've worked with a lot of people, haven't you? I have, yeah. I've been really lucky, really, really lucky. And that was me in conversation with Steve Beswick, the drummer from many bands. And a big thank you to Steve for giving me the time of that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason... <clears throat> Make it positive, though. Thank you. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. So there you go. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>